This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Near the end of old Douglas Sirk's 1954 Technicolor melodrama, Magnificent Obsession, Otto Kruger makes a pretty heavy declaration. Once you find the way, you'll be bound. It will obsess you, but believe me, it will be a magnificent obsession. I think we can agree that's a sentiment that our pal Doc Sportello would be in a nodding, bleary-eyed acquaintance with, drawn inevitably as he is to the flame of beloved ex-old Shasta Faye Hepworth. It's also something Bigfoot Bjornsson, Hope Harlingen, and the rest of Pynchon's alliteratively named rogues gallery of dropouts and dopers and heroes and hopefuls understand. Once you find the way, you'll be bound. They're bound, all right, though magnificent isn't a word they probably use, what with their hopes and dreams all being squashed beneath the boot of time and time's mercenary, the golden fang. But obsessions can be magnificent, whether focused on a person or a time or maybe just a screen flicker at 24 frames per second. To passionately dedicate yourself to something you love can unlock doors you never even knew were there, sending you tumbling into worlds you never knew existed. That's something our host would know a thing or three about. Our guest does too, from sitting in the cave dark of a theater for the first time, to jockeying a video store, to fanatically freaking out about favorite films. They understand obsession, how it can be magnificent, how it can be inherent. Once you find the way, you'll be bound. Boy, don't we know it, Otto. And we're back. After a brief holiday break, we return with the first episode of Increment Vice of the new year of 2020, and we return with what is, in my opinion, a most fitting episode to start off with, as today's scene, in many ways, is the entirety of PTA's inherent vice in microcosm. It surfs from Bigfoot versus Doc goofballery to sadly sweet romanticism as Doc smokes and pines and longs for his lost ex-old Shasta Fay before finally coming to rest on the shores of film noir with a phone call that begins with a dead man and pulls our hero deep into the conspiratorial mystery that drives the film's plot. All of which is suffused with the wistful Neil Young record melancholy that is the soul of the film. It's like three mini-movies in one scene, and that's a bargain. And it feels like all of Inherent Vice's disparate elements are cohering into one tight little knot just for this scene, tying off the first act before the headlong, deep-dive plunge into its capital M, Mystery. And, helping return us to the multi-layered world of Inherent Vice is someone who knows a thing or two, or three, about movies. A film reporter, broadcaster, historian, author, podcaster, and self-confessed movie geek, my guest today has talked film on the Today Show, NPR, MSNBC, ABC's Academy Awards Red Carpet Pre-Show, CNN's The Movies docuseries, her own indie movie guide for Fantango. <sighs> Deep breath. <laughs> she was the host of The Late, oh, The Great, the never-to-be-forgotten Filmstruck, as well as the host and producer of the Filmstruck podcast. She is now a host on Turner Classic Movies and TCM Imports, where Martin Scorsese loves her intros. <laughs> and, Jesus... When do you sleep? <laughs> Never. 
<laughs> she is the host of the podcast Magnificent Obsession, in which she talks to people with different jobs in the film industry about how they got their start and how movies shaped their lives. And if that wasn't enough to make you feel as terrible about your own productivity as I now do, she's written two amazing books that are an incredible resource for film fanatics. Backwards and in Heels, The Past, Present, and Future of Women Working in Film, and The Female Gaze, Essential Movies Made by Women. Ladies and gentlemen, a fellow movie tattoo aficionado, a true film obsessive, and the hardest working lady in show business, <laughs> Alicia Malone. Thank you for having me. I mean, that made me sound a lot more impressive than I actually am. Oh. But um, I do love movies and I love what I do, so all I do is watch movies. Well, same. Well, one movie in my case. Now, uh, do you want me to hang back and you can do the same kind of thing for me? Yeah, like big, which, sure. Which, like, I'm sure you came prepared. You have yeah, one written. <laughs> absolutely. You're pausing um, now. It doesn't seem like you have of Inherent Vice. <laughs> oh, you could figure that out on Twitter. You didn't write anything. Wonderful but, podcaster. <laughs> seriously, when do you sleep? Yeah. Like, I need a caffeine drip just to schlep myself into the studio once a week to record this show. You're out there. Conquering every form of media, <laughs> uh, except for like the Vanity Pop album. Unless, do you have a Vanity no, Pop album? I do not. You should get one. Just all title it just one word: Malone, <laughs> like the Burt Reynolds movie. Yes. You're in a studio. We could record. Good idea. Okay. Except I cannot sing. Oh, all right. Well, that's one thing. <laughs> but one of the reasons, one of the myriad of reasons, I asked you to be on, in addition to. I feel like I could throw a dart at any movie title and you'd be able to give me an exegesis of it. <laughs> uh, this is a film about obsession. And I think that you are someone who probably understands obsession, at least as it, as it relates to film. And before we, we start swimming into these, these weird waters of inherent vice, uh, I've always just wanted to ask you in general, what obsessed you about film? Mm. I got obsessed with film from a very early age. My whole family is into movies, so I feel like classic films was always were always around. They're always mm -hmm. part of my childhood growing up. And I don't know what it was exactly, but I, I mean, the first memory I ever have is of being three years old and being inside a movie theater for the first time and seeing the never-ending story. Oh. And because I loved horses, I got really <laughs> sad when it came to the swamp of sadness. We don't, we don't talk about that. Oh, talk it about still that. kills me. I still can't watch the film because of that. An entire generation scarred. Yes. But we're not going to talk about that. And I was crying so much that my mom had to take me out of the theater. I was kicked out. In my first, I I was taken to the re-release of E.T. and the scene, which no child should look at when like E.T. is just like gray and dead, like oh, in a ditch. Yes. I started screaming, like, "Oh my god!" Like a three-year-old screaming, "Oh my god!" And they made my parents leave because I was <laughs> in hysterics. Yeah, I was the same, and I didn't yet understand what a film was, so I thought I was watching a horse die in front of my <laughs> eyes, and I was so terrified, but. That was one of a couple of different films that had a big impact on me because of the way it made me feel. I walked out of the theater and I was almost uh, glad to have that experience, as traumatic as it was. And I think ever since then, I was searching for films that made me feel something in one way or the other. I started watching, you know, David Lynch films really young, Clockwork mm -hmm. Orange really young, but I got a lot into the classic films as well. And I fell in love with the glamorous women of, you know, those studio movies like Marilyn Monroe and Rita Hayworth. And I wanted to be them. And 
Really, film became an escape for me when I was young. I was always a shy kid mm -hmm. and I didn't really enjoy going out to parties or doing all those things as a teenager. I just wanted to watch movies and stay at home. And I think also like me, you were a video store clerk. Yes, I was. And can we not say, I mean, your job is amazing. <laughs> Don't you kind of miss it though? I really miss it. Don't you just it. miss it? I really, really do. So much so that Vidiets is a video store oh, opening back up in back, LA in fall of this year. And it's in Eagle Rock. And I've asked if I can guest clerk because I miss <laughs> doing it so much. Oh, I God. got that job straight out of high school. And it was the best job that I had. I couldn't think of anything better. I would put, you know, I'd get in trouble because I'd put Reservoir Dogs up on the big screens and little kids would walk in and be shocked by the violence. But I took my pics so seriously. I mm -hmm. made a list that I was so proud of. I would try and encourage people to rent from my list rather than, you know, get Lethal Weapon or something else. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, hey I mean, nothing hey, wrong with Lethal Weapon. Hey. But mine was like a little bit more of like the foreign films and the classics. Yeah. I was trying to push people in that direction. And, you know, I same did the same thing in high school. I tried to start a film club and no one came to my screenings. But I was always obsessed with film. It was a great escape for me. Um, it made me feel like I could travel the world. I could get insights into other people's lives, learn a lot about history and politics from watching films. And I wanted to share that with people. But it very quickly, I don't know if it's the same with you, but it very quickly became more of a solo exercise for me because my friends just weren't into it. It it becomes that way when you realize that your appetite is inexhaustible and is voracious. But then there are other people, we'll call them normal people, who, you know, they're they're done. Like, yeah. you're like, hey, okay, we're going to have a great time this weekend. We're going to watch. And you, 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 you'll you watch, like, the first week, the first movie with your friends. And then you're like, okay, on to the next. Yeah. Like, well, no, 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 no. We That's our movie for the weekend. We don't, I don't really need to see another David Lean movie in one weekend, Travis. And I... I was never able to understand, like, well, no, this is all we're going to do. We're mm -hmm. just going to sit until we fall asleep. And that I think that is something that, uh, yeah, that you really hit on, that part of, I think, being a true movie obsessive is you you are voracious. There is that, that thing that other people don't understand when you say, well, I'm going to go to the movie theater today. I'll probably be gone all day Yeah, because I'm going to hit this at 10. But then at 1230, they're playing that. Oh, I love and that. And then at like 330, they're playing this. Day. And that's that's heaven. Yes. But then no one else seems to quite exactly. feel the same way in my life. Exactly. You know, when I was a teenager, they used to have movie marathons in Canberra where I grew up in mm -hmm. Australia. And they do it over the long weekend. And I'd be so excited. I'd get a group of friends together. And then I would sit down there. I'd have my little comforter and my, you know, <laughs> sweatpants and my thing of soup ready to go from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and my friends would arrive and then be like, we'll be back at 6 a.m. We're just going to go hang with the boys. Uh, tell us what we missed so we can tell our parents. And I was so confused. I was like, what? Hang boys for boys? Like, but movies are playing right now. And there are boys in movies. Yeah. Like, why? I, don't, I didn't understand. And, and I used to think there was something wrong with me. And then for a while, <laughs> I just didn't even talk about film with anyone. I just kept it to myself. So much so that when I started to speak about film... You know, I found I was pronouncing things wrong, people's names, because oh, I had, in the world. I had just never read said, it, never had but that I've never said it, exactly. Never had that conversation. Oh, God, and this that's is so before, you know, podcasts and yeah. YouTube channels, so I was really on my own reading these books and 
storing them in my head being like Vincente Minnelli <laughs> and then <laughs> finding out later oh it's Vincent right okay got that <laughs> I've done that several times yeah it's, it is absolutely mortifying um for the longest time I was like Sidney Lumet yeah I love Sidney Lumet movies <laughs> thinking I was so sharp for getting yeah, it's Lumet and Jules then Dassin it was like a- now he was born in America <laughs> Jules Dassin oh god uh speaking of obsessions cinematic obsessions curious you can you can shotgun a handful at me if you want. Mm-hmm. Favorite films about about obsession. About for obsession. You. Um, I'm sure you're gonna say Inherent Vice. Number yeah, one. Inherent Vice. Remember where number you are. One. Remember where you are. Uh, no, I I do like Inherent Vice, and we'll get into that. I mean, it's it's so silly that I just want to say Magnificent Obsession, but there is a reason why I named my podcast after that movie because I love the Douglas Sirk yeah. version of that story. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, it says, like, it's an obsession, but it is a magnificent one. And throughout the film, you see Rock Hudson's character becoming obsessed with this idea of trying to do good and pay it forward. And you see the times when it doesn't work out. And in the end, it's all about finding a purpose that's bigger than yourself and um, trying to, to... serve the greater good rather than your own means. And you see his playboy character going from being this high boat speed racer to being a doctor, you know, and I really love the Douglas Sirk melodramas. I would say I'm obsessed about them. Mm -hmm. I was just re-watching All That Heaven Allows, which I've seen for the millionth time, and just delving into that, I think, in the same way that you do with Inherent Vice Uh, Looking at the compositions of each shot, the lighting, the set, the details in there, it's got so much there that people don't don't really pay attention to. Pure visual bliss, Mm -hmm. that film. I mean, I I die inside when I watch it. It makes me very sad. Pure bliss, that film. Um, Got any others? Yeah. I'm always terrible at this when it comes to, like, movies about this. I'm like, and then later on. Damn it, I should have said this and this and that. Um, Say Laura. Oh, yes, Laura is a really good one. (laughs) Very, very good one. I mean, I love Gene Tierney. Um, I'll throw another one at you, uh, Leave It to Heaven, with Gene Tierney, where you would say that she is obsessed with being married and obsessed with the guy. And coming to Criterion. Coming to Criterion. I cannot wait. And that is also, to tie it back to Inherent Vice, a great example of a film noir in the daylight. Yes. And how creepy that can be. And I think she is so wonderful in that film. Yeah, she's she's absolutely terrifying. Mm. Uh, I had such a crush on her and Laura. Mm -hmm. And then I and then I moved to that film and just I it. It cooled me. It cooled me a little bit. It was a little <laughs> she frightening. she's a little scary. She's so terrifying, but never anything less than galvanizing. You, you can't not watch, even though you are absolutely terrified. It's that such scene a on the visceral lake performance. Oh. Where you just see her face, and it's so cold as she's watching the boy like struggling. Slate. Yeah, and then it's only... She only gets shocked out of that when she hears husband calling out and then she pretends that she's trying to save the boy. But that is a chilling performance. And her face is so captivating. Same in Laura. You know, when she smokes, you just can't help but just love her, everything that she does. You want to scrap this and just do like a Jean Tierney <laughs> Can we? Do you yeah. want to do that? Like... So beautiful, but such a wonderful actress as well. And she adds so much depth to her. Now... I'm curious now that we're we're moving toward we're moving noirward. 
<laughs> what is it about noir and neo-noir, in your opinion, that makes them so suited to be vehicles for obsession? Mm. Um, is it just because they take place within like the chassis of a mystery uh, and that is kind of the motor that drives them forward? Or is there something deeper? Because I can't think of a better genre, maybe maybe dark romance. Uh, but uh, is, there a, is there a reason in your eyes why neo-noir and noir speak so well to the idea of obsession? Yeah, you always have that central obsessed character is usually mm -hmm. the PI, and he's the outsider in the story. He's the one taking a peek under the rug and seeing what's really going on. And I think it's such a great way to show obsession because you see, um, you know, the detective following the mystery. And in order to make the mystery happen, you need that obsession to keep it moving forward. But you see how you're through his eyes that that's fit bigger or sometimes her eyes, but usually his eyes. Um, he's the outside figure. He's the one that is saying, hey, there's something wrong here where everyone else is going about their daily life and not knowing. I love how film noir takes a look under the surface and it makes you feel like there's something dark and, and deep going underneath. That's why I loved Mulholland Drive by, yeah. you know, still love Mulholland Drive by David Lynch and Blue Velvet by David Lynch as well because he presents such beautiful worlds on the surface but underneath there's some darkness. And that character always gets obsessed with trying to find out the truth and he is the one that goes up against authority, that goes up against the big guys, and he's our hero that we want to follow along that journey. And there's also this idea, I don't know if it's so much an inherent vice, which I suppose we would are eventually going to have to speak about, <laughs> but there's it's definitely in Blue Velvet, and it's something that's always grabbed me when watching noir. And I'm going to get this line wrong, but um, Kyle MacLachlan in Blue Velvet, when he's asked, like, why, why are you going to do this? Why are you going to sneak into this lady's room? Why are you going to keep messing with this guy named Frank who seems to be a little off kilter? <laughs> uh, and he says something to the effect of, there's just this whole world that I never knew was there. Mm. And there's something about that that it's I like think... like once they have a look at that world, they can't, they can't escape it. Because now have you know to. it's there. Yeah. Now you know it's there. You can't there. ignore that How it's do you there. look away now that you know that there's this, this sub-world that's vibrating on a completely different atomic frequency yes. than your day-to-day -day going to work, coming home, having a beer, having a Heineken, having dinner, <laughs> going on a date, going to bed. There's this whole other world of danger exactly. and risk. And I feel like we all have a suspicion that there's larger forces going on that we can't control um, that are orchestrating things in a way that we can't even see. So it's nice when you get to follow a hero that delves into that world. Sometimes they're not successful. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. You know, he's never going to change things. He's not big enough to be able to change it. But you love seeing that journey of someone trying to, you know, confront that darkness and weed it out from behind the rafters. And I always felt growing up in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia, it was designed by Walter Burley Griffin and it was designed specifically to be the capital. So it was all planned out. It's very beautifully planned. But because it's so beautifully planned and shiny on the surface, I always felt like there was something dark and yeah. corrupt going on underneath that I just couldn't see. And then when I found the, you know, the, the noir genre in particular, 
I felt like that was speaking to to me, even though I was living in a lovely time in Australia. It was not like there was big like distrust of authority at that moment. But and speaking of that, there often is. <laughs> isn't it? It's speaking of the you know secret organizations and power structures that just have to be just burning right beneath the surface. Doesn't 2019 feel like the most golden thing year in existence? <laughs> like, how do you turn on the news and not just go, it's the golden thing? Every day. Like, this this can't this can't be really what reality... And then you really... Yeah, it is. It's it's it's, it's billionaires and it's yep. uh, insane politicians. I'm not going to name any names. Yep. Uh, but I bet you can Working guess. with other countries. Oh. Like, it. there's a whole world that we don't even see. And I think... In opening the last couple of years, I don't know if it's the same for you being an American, but me coming to America, only in the last few years have I realized the depth of that. Whereas I think during the previous administration, I kind of had this these blinkers on and I thought that everything was rosy and everything was great. So right? we are kind of living we in this. We were cool. And then suddenly, yeah, the rug gets pulled out and the cockroaches yeah. come out. And for people like, like myself, I was shocked, you know, yeah. but then... Since then, I've realized just just the depths of of all the issues happening right now and, in the world. Okay. Speaking of noir, and I'm just gonna just I'm just gonna keep picking your brain because the opportunity is here. <laughs> and so, sorry everybody listening, you're just gonna have to deal with this. Uh, what is your relationship with with film noir? Are you yeah. a noir person? Are you a neo noir person? I, uh, I know there's some people that I'm, I know that this is not your problem. There's some people I know who won't do the black and white. They'll 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 stick with neo noir. They'll do. But what is your release? I love noir. Love film noir. I would never call myself a like a film noir encyclopedia. I don't have that huge breadth of knowledge about noir, like someone like Eddie Muller does, host of Noir Alley on TCM. I mean, he's the czar of noir, and you talk to him, and he has so many stories. And I always love sitting down talking to him because he has he knows so much about this genre, but. I started watching it as an early at an early age because my dad is really into film noir. He mm-hmm. still is today. You know, he's in his seventies and he still goes to a film class at university every week. Oh, that's so cool. So that he can watch a film with people and talk to them <laughs> about it. And he he said to me recently, I think you got your love of noir from me because he used to always show me film noir. Um, and so I started with the black and white. So that will still have a more of a special place in my heart, but I really appreciate the neo-noirs and, and the new twists on the genre. Um, but the the ones like, you know, The Big Sleep, you know, that just looms large in my heart. And it's a film that I watch and much like Inherent Vice, I'm like, I don't really know what's going on, but it doesn't matter, does it? Because <laughs> it's about the mood. Matter. Exactly. The mystery does And you'll drive yourself crazy if you're trying <laughs> to connect all the dots and the characters and the plot points. But I, so I like neo-noirs like, um, yeah, Chinatown and, of course, David Lynch, who I've mentioned many times before, Long Goodbye. Mm. But, you know, I still have more of a special place in my heart for the, the black and white neo-noir. I love that lighting, the contrast yeah. of light and shadow. There's something almost more terrifying to me. In the daylight? About film. No, about film. Oh. About, about the older. I was going to say that it's creepy in the daylight, too. But there's something about the, res- you know, some the haze coated restraint in a way when once you get to neo noir 1970s 80s 90s now you could put anything on screen if you wanted to and there's something 
almost more disturbing about the restraint mm. to me of the earlier films, the things that are unsaid, but you know, or the are double happening. talk, and yeah. you have to unscramble exactly what they're talking about. Well, so about. much of the early noirs, it's almost look, like looking at that Gene Tierney slate blank face where you're not, you know, that there is some sort of snake brained, horrible stuff going on behind those eyes. But it's not being explicitly told to you, but you know it's there, and that's almost more terrifying. It's like not seeing the it's not 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 seeing the shark in Jaws. Mm. It's a lot scarier when you don't know how deep the waters are. It's like and Jen, what's in them. Janet Greer in um, Out of the Past. Exactly. You know, she it looks so beautiful and innocent, and then underneath there's so much happening. It's so Machiavellian and dangerous. Yes. Yeah. And, but then that's also and part dressed of the thing. so beautifully. That's yeah. what I like as well. Like it's it looks so elegant. And also the the post-war feeling of distrust yeah. that permeates through all of those films. Well, I suppose we should probably talk about Inherent <laughs> Vice at some point. And I'm going to bring something up, and you're you're going to hold my hand through this. I'm going to so I don't start crying. <laughs> I'm going to mention Filmstruck Fridays. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, let's just let's just deep breath, step up or lift, Travis. Step up or lift. Still, still hurts. I'm biting my knuckle. Still uh, hurts. <laughs> Uh, there was a film struck Friday where you were talking about and for those of those animals out there who don't know what that is. <laughs> um, Alicia would release a video on Twitter just saying, "Hey, here are some films coming to Filmstruck this week or this month." Yeah, just and my I'm little group together because they rock. Uh, and we got to see all the cool posters in your apartment. Uh, <laughs> and one of those was, I think, it was unconventional noirs, uh, if I recall correctly. And in that video, you said one thing you really enjoyed about Unconventional Noir was how the the type of film where parts of film noir were removed from that genre and placed into to different films, to non-noir films. And you listed some films. The Long Goodbye mm-hmm. was one. Uh, big fan. I even have an Elliot Gould tattoo. I, I am the only person I've on earth about with that. an Elliot Gould tattoo. Um, which is actually kind of sad now that I think about it. And no. He, he was really creeped out by it. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's funny because I have a Mia Wallace tattoo from Pulp Fiction and I got it in Amsterdam, funnily enough, just before <laughs> I thought it was appropriate. And I went to the Cannes Film Festival and I was sitting on some stairs and up walks Uma, Uma Thurman. And I thought she was going to be creeped out by it, especially because it was at the scabby stage mm-hmm. of getting a oh. tattoo. But she was so excited. She was like, can I take a picture? Okay. Like, sure. We've already started our first increment vice digression. This, these happen every episode where we go totally off topic, but now we're just going to talk about this for a moment. I met Elliot Gould this year uh, at a screening of The Long Goodbye at the Egyptian Theater for Beyond Fest, and the people that put on Beyond Fest know me, and so they asked me to come on stage just to show the crowd my tattoo before the screening, and everyone was just like gasped when I when I showed it, just like, oh my God, someone actually has a Elliot Gould tattoo. And I said into the mic, what, what, is that weird? The whole crowd yells back, no, like, it's so yeah. awesome. And then there's a pause. You hear this one voice go, it's pretty weird. <laughs> and it was Elliot Gould sitting in the audience. That's great. And then he, we did meet up later after the, the, the screening. He gave me a signed can of cat food. Oh, perfect. But still, he was so cool about it. He's like, speaking in the third person, an Elliot Gould tattoo. Who ever heard of such a thing? Why would you do this? And I was like, you're in more notes. You're my two favorite actors. I love and, that. 
And I don't think it's that weird. I mean, say I, I, what you will about me, but I think that's a great tattoo to get. I thought so, but he kept saying, that's not me. That's Marlo. You don't have an Elliot Gould <laughs> tattoo. You shouldn't do such a thing. It's everything. Like, and I think he was very concerned about my, my life choices. Sure. <laughs> Which, uh, now that I, as someone who hosts an Inherent Vice podcast, perhaps he was he was right to worry. No, I think it's it's wonderful, you know. And, uh, yeah, Uma was like, can I take a photo of you? I was like, sure, Uma Thurman, you can take a photo of me. <laughs> she was like, I'll send it to Tarantino so he can see it. And I was like, surely, like, she must see so many, like, the bride tattoos. Like, mm-hmm. surely there must be. But she was so excited I that I I have never seen shocked. your tattoo elsewhere. Oh. No, I mean, I've seen oh. it. I've seen you post it. I'll show it to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's on my ankle. We're going to start doing, like, the jaws, like, <laughs> yeah. the scar to the, I've got Badlands, I've. Yeah, um, I need more film tattoos. Uh, well, we've got an hour. You want to call it? We can. Yeah. That would be an episode. Uh, but circling back to what I said, you've said how you enjoyed films in which elements of film noir are removed from that genre and mm. placed into this unconventional, otherwise not a noir film. Mm-hmm. And that's something that makes me think of Inherent Vice in that during its making, Paul Thomas Anderson described it thusly when when someone said, oh, wow, so you're finally making your post-Sydney film noir, you know, whatever, or people want to call it hard eight, uh, we'll be pretentious and call it Sydney for, <laughs> for PTA. Uh, you're, you're really making your first real long goodbye detective movie because you're an Altman guy. And he wrote that off as saying, no, the noir idea was something we were trying to get rid of. Sort of ignore that. We kept thinking about trying to make a Neil Young song out of this. Melancholy for the past, Kind of heartbroken at the way things have gone, but still hopeful. You can still tap your toe to it. When you watch Inherent Vice, do you see a film noir? Do you see a romance? Do you see mm. a model shoppy <laughs> once upon a time in Hollywood into mm. the 60s movie? Do you see all of those or do you see something else? Yeah, I see a bit of all of those, but I like the fact that it takes the noir conventions and then twists them. Because as was, I was saying, you know, I was very confused by inherent vice when we talked in our initial emails i was like i have no idea what's going on in that movie but sure um you were very nice because that, that was your exact response you're yeah. like i have no idea what's going what this on movie is about film. but it, i'll come on if you want absolutely but um you know i i realized so i'll i'll tell you about my first time i saw inherent vice and then i'll come back to it so first time i saw inherent vice was in t- 2014 it was mm-hmm. before the film came out i was doing a press junket uh, which I used to do all those, cover those press junkets where basically the star sits in the hotel room all day and it's a revolving door of journalists coming in for their four minutes each. And so I watched the film with the eye that I was going to be interviewing Josh Brolin and Joaquin Phoenix and Catherine Waterston and what was I going to ask them. So I was t- paying too much attention to all the tiny details. And then I, so I got really confused and I knew I had to see it a second time. Mm-hmm. I, I told that to the actors I was like I need to see this again they said yes you definitely do I remember that um Edgar Wright tweet where he was like inherent twice he called yeah, it you know because you had to cute. see it again and so the second time I let it wash over me more and I I appreciated the fact that it was taking these noir conventions of a mystery but giving it a real big twist with so many other themes that are going in there And even though when you watch it and you can map it out and it does all make sense, if you want to sit down and write down all the characters. It's going to be like Doc with the whiteboard at the side of the bar. Connecting them all, that it works. But um, that's not the point of it. You know, it really is 
talking about larger themes, but I think there's enough that's touched on that you can have your own opinion on it. I love films that do that, that you walk out of, you're sitting next to your friend, you might laugh at the same time, cry at the same time, mm-hmm. but you have a different idea completely about what that film's about. I think it's got a layer of ambiguity over the whole thing that allows for, you know, a podcast like this where we can really <laughs> delve into the themes rather than explaining everything. I'm sure this is exactly what PTA had in mind <laughs> when you made in your advice. But I like I that it's not show. all spoon-fed to yeah. us and it's not a straight noir, it's not a straight romance, it's not even a straight comedy. And I do think the time setting has a big, big factor over it all. It gives it that level of darkness yeah. over the whole film. Interesting that PTA was born in 1970. Yep. And that is a, a real pivotal shift. I just recently watched, again, Gimme Shelter, the great documentary, which is heartbreaking and so dark. And that is a great illustration of the death of the dream of the, the 60s, the free love, the free concerts. Let's get stoned and like listen to music. It turns so violent with the Hell's Angels, you know, someone getting killed by the Hell's Angels and you see Mick Jagger and the Stones watching the footage and just realising that things have changed from now on. With such a helplessness. Yeah. And I think that that's part... There's that great, that great Joan Didion line in the White Album when she's writing about the Manson murders and she says something to the effect of, and of course I'm going to screw this up, I remember something else. I remember no one was surprised. Mm-hmm. And I went through a period where I was in, in college, I was obsessed with Gimme Shelter. I was just obsessed with it. Uh, not to sound like Travis Bickle, but I did go through a period where I just, I, I had to re like every day after classes, I would just go home and throw on Gimme Shelter. I just had, I was so sucked into it. And what so struck me, and this feels very noirish in a way, is the sense of inevitability. Once. Yes. Once, like, Marty Balin and Jefferson Airplanes gets beat up with pool cues. Oh, yeah. And you re- something in the day sours. And I think, was it Jerry Garcia says something like, just doesn't seem right, right, man? Yeah. Or something like, like that. Uh, what's like, going on here? But as, soon, as the night descends and you see the stones, who prior to this were, like, they're gods, even though they were just these 100-pound little British guys. But, like, you saw them as gods. And then as they watch, as the melee begins, they seem so helpless. Yes. And so not in control the way you expect these Campbellian yes. supermen to be, your rock gods to be. There was something so depressingly inevitable about how that ended. And I feel like the best end of the decade hangover movies, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mm. or Cutter's Way or Give Me Shelter or Inherent Vice, they're all freighted with that sense of this is inevitable. This was yep. always going to happen. And that's why I think Again, there's larger forces at work that you aren't power, you're powerless to resist. There were things out there making moves before you even know they existed. Exactly, and by uh, the time you realize it, of dominoes it's too late. Before you even knew they existed, they had already started to fall. Making what happens today, this was ordained years, if not decades ago. This was always going to be this way. The Altamont, the deaths of MLK and RFK, the Nixon's yeah. election, the Tet Offensive. All of these things, they were all the lines of force that generated them. They were kicked off 15, 20 years before you were born. This was always going to happen. And that's so, I think, a piece of what Pynchon was getting at in his novel about his, it's a very angry, especially for him, 
angry rumination and look back on a time that I think he can't speak for the man and he won't speak for himself, but <laughs> I feel like there's an angry rumination in that book and a, and a feeling of foolishness, like how did we not see that yeah. this is what it was going to be? An anger that the promise, though, of that decade, the promise they believed in never came true. Exactly. I mean, you see that in Gimme Shelter, you know, when Mick Jagger is holding and the Stones are holding the press conference and he has such an idealized view of what that concert's going to be, free, peace, love, people coming together for music. And um, and then the fact that they have the Stones watching the footage back, it's so it does lend to that inevitability that then they can see it, yeah. only with the benefit of hindsight. And that feeling of recognizing that your time has passed is gone. I mean, to me, that's what inherent vice is. You know, I know it's all that you can't insure against, but to me, all that you can't insure against is time and, yeah. that, and what time takes from us. And, and you I, see Doc, you know, no matter what he did, again, it's like Chinatown, no matter what he did or what he was trying to do, it was always going to end that way. Well, that's that, there's that great, uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're jumping a little ahead into our scene. We'll get to it. But there's that great bit of narration in the scene that we're here to talk about today where Sorlige is talking about Doc's relationship with Shasta. And she even says, it wasn't any clearer uh, about what had driven them apart either. They just... Each gradually located a different karmic thermal, watching the other glide away into different face. Does it ever end? Of course it does. It did. That, to me, is the soul of this movie. Where And I think PTA takes the central thrust of the novel, which is the death of a decade, the death of a time, and he turns that into a metaphor for a breakup movie. And that's what this film is to me, even more than a noir, even more than a comedy. This is a breakup movie to me. Mm. And it's about how love ends, and what do we do when it ends. I always mention if the through line of Magnolia is what can we forgive, the through line that bleeds all the way through beginning to end in your advice to me is not what can we forgive, it's what can we live without, Yeah. And how do we do that. And how do we move on? You know, Doc is still holding on to Shasta and trying his best to get her back into his life and back... You know, and she is such a apparition through most of the, the film. You don't ever know if she's a hallucination or if she's really there. She seems very idealized as well by him. She literally shows up at, later in the film dressed the way he always remembered exactly. her. Oh, boy, we're getting all over the place. Yes, uh, but it's it's true. It's like trying to hold on to something that is ephemeral and something that was always going to end. You know, those those relationships you're in, no matter what you do, you know it's going to end. You can't hold on to it. It's not going to last forever. And not only that, you get the sense in the film, and PTA has made this explicit when he talks about Doc and Shasta, Shasta is not even the right person for Doc. He's even said in that great PTA Valley Valley kind of, he's like, hey man, haven't you ever had that ex-old lady that just, she broke your heart, you kind of hate her, but at the same time, You've got to know who she's sleeping with. You've got to know who she's talking to. Is she thinking of me? Does she miss me? I really miss her. And if she shows up at your door, you he's like, you know she's going to fuck your life up, but you're going to open the door and say, how can I help? Exactly. And the narration of, like, he didn't know why she was into him. Yeah, like, he still doesn't. Which is in the scene as well that we're talking about. Like, he doesn't know why... She liked him. And, you know, those those kind of unequal relationships, the ones yeah. that are never going to last. And I love I love the, the emotional honesty of that because I feel like so many movies 
will do a thing where, you know, we're just taught to believe two people are supposed to be together. Damn it. They're going to find a way. Uh, Bogart and Bacall, come on. I love the emotional honesty, especially in this sequence where it makes it clear maybe he doesn't really know this woman yeah. as well as he thinks. And he has begun to project his idea of who Shasta Faye should be exactly onto her. And in I made this comparison in our second episode with Kim Morgan. There are many times where Shasta Faye feels like Linda Darnell to me in Fallen Angel, mm-hmm. where everyone's pining for her. Everyone's bending over backwards for her. Everybody wants her so badly, and yet no one has any idea who she is yes. as a person and as a woman. Yes. Other than we as an audience, I think I think Kim put it as, this is someone who's been through some shit. Yes. That's all we really know about her, but everyone else She's is projecting their very idea. very idealized, you know, and, and Linda Dunnell as the actress as well. Um, she was thought to be too beautiful, like she wasn't taken that seriously. But you see she had great acting chops in like uh, Letters to Three Wives, you know. She has such such fun with that character and so she has depth to her, but she was so beautiful that no one, that people just idealised her in Hollywood as well Mm -hmm. as in her film roles. And, you know, you feel that about the character of Shasta that you don't know what she is really like or who she really is. She keeps a lot to herself as well, as all great femme fatales do. Yeah. You never know what's bubbling under that surface. Uh, but you do get the sense that she has just become this woman on a pedestal to him and him smoking the joint to her is kind of show, emblematic of, like, of the fact that she can be, I don't know, like, gone so quickly, you mm-hmm. know? She, it's not, you can't hold on to her. And... Oh, boy, we are so skipping ahead before we even watch the scene. But I want to bring this up because you mentioned it, so I have to. I'm legally obligated to talk about this. That is one of the sweetest moments. However misguided Doc's obsession and his love, which I do believe is genuine, even if it's perhaps not the most... He has not. I don't know if he's actually sat down and analyzed why he loves Shasta. I yeah. think that he is... PTA kind of compared him to a loyal dog. Doesn't, he's not going to think about why he loves Shasta. He loves Shasta. Shasta's his master. He's going for Shasta. But that I do... I am moved to the point of tears during this scene by the sweetness of Doc lighting that joint for her. Because in, in, in the book, it's made clear that when he writes to Shasta's safety with love, Doc on the inside of a zigzag and smokes it, that... He's doing this to save her. And there's a there's a passage in the book. And I believe I feel like this whole scene is suffused with this, this this noble, if misguided love where Pynchon writes, there was an ancient super superstition at the beach, something like the surfer belief that burning your board will bring awesome waves. And it went like this. Take a zigzag paper and write on it your dearest wish and then use it to roll a joint of the best dope you can find and smoke it all up and your wish would be granted. Attention and concentration were also said to be important, but most of the dopers Doc knew tended to ignore that part. Mm. The wish was simple, just that Shasta Fay be safe. The dope was some Hawaiian product Doc had been saving, although at the moment he couldn't remember for what. He lit up. About the same time he was ready to transfer the roach to a roach clip, the phone rang again, and he had one of those brief lapses where you forget how to pick up the receiver. <laughs> That's so Doc to me. Yeah. A little confused, not quite sure what he's doing, but believing the thing he's doing is right. Yeah, and, and guided for the by good. his heart. Yeah, and oh, God, isn't that great? Isn't yeah. that so sweet? Don't you 
Don't you love Doc? It is sweet because it, that character could have easily strayed into like obsessive stalkerish territory, um, and you see him being confused about the kind of guy that she would want to be or she chooses to be yeah. with because it doesn't match up to his idea of her. But it doesn't stray into that, luckily. It, it holds back from that and you see that he's just trying to do his best and, and that's why he is a great character standing apart from all the rest because he is guided by his heart and he wants good. He wants to do the good. He's not corrupted by greed or anything, you know, money or any or d- drugs to that degree. You know, he does his, smokes his uh, marijuana but he's not shooting ah. up heroin, you know. <laughs> Yeah, she makes explicit. He doesn't do heroin. Yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> exactly. I mean, no one really talks about this. He kind of, sort of, might be cheating on Penny Kemble, uh, assistant <laughs> DA slash girlfriend. That aside, that aside. But she seems like, as well. She seems like she's using him, Penny, she's seeking, because uh, hippie thrills. As yeah, he says. she doesn't want him to come into her workplace and mm-hmm. embarrass her. Yeah. But she's happy to go over there late at night, you know, with the pizza. Yeah. <laughs> on that note. Let's be professionals here. Okay. Let's actually watch the scene. We'll talk about the scene. We'll be right back. Apparently, a party of civilians did some training exercise in anti-guerrilla warfare. We may have assumed that this construction site, not yet open for occupancy, was deserted enough to provide a realistic setting for what we must assume was only a harmless patriotic scenario. Tragically, Michael Wolfman has mysteriously vanished. Hello? Hey, it's me. Listen, we, uh, we sent a police academy hotshot over to the last known address, Shasta Fay Upworth. Oh, fuck, no, no. Yeah, they got there, and it was, uh... They looked what? in the window, and, uh... What? They tried to open the door, and she's just, uh... They went in. She's out there, man. Out there? Yeah. What, what, what is that? Well, she's disappeared just like her boyfriend, Mickey, and I thought maybe you'd think there was a connection. Maybe she's they took off together. Yeah, she's gone, man, baby. She's gone? She disappeared? What, what? She went all groovy on us. You know, Bigfoot, man, can we just try to be fucking professional? I mean, just, just pretend to be professional. She has to fade up with She's gone. Fuck you. Doc could never figure out what Shasta might have seen in him, besides being just about the only doper she knew who didn't use heroin, freeing up a lot of time for both of them. And it wasn't any clearer about what had driven them apart, either. They each gradually located a different karmic thermal, watching the other glide away into different fates. Does it ever end? Of course it does. It did.
Good. Mr. Sportello? Mm-hmm. I got your number from the uh, head shop down in uh, Gordita Beach. I'm calling about my husband. He was a close friend of a friend of yours, Shasta Faye Hepworth. Uh-huh. And, um, your name is? Hope Harlogen. Mm-hmm. And your husband is? Dead. Mm-hmm. Sorry to hear that. Speaking to what you said just before that clip, when you said that Doc is a noble person, that Doc hasn't been corrupted. He's, you know, he's he's a stoner, but he's a good guy at heart. Interestingly enough, this this scene begins with everybody's favorite Bigfoot Bjornsson, who I think actually, as a character, has been corrupted. And I've I've said this on a lot of episodes, but to me, he is the key to unlocking Inherent Vice. Not Shasta Fay, not Hope and Coy, not Doc, but Bigfoot. He unlocks the meaning of the film because... We go into the movie, if you haven't read the book, and you're watching the movie for the first time, you see him as like, okay, this is Ralph Meeker. He's the heavy. This is, this. I know, he, he's, this is the bad guy. I know who I'm dealing with. But instead, he turns out to be just this deeply heartbroken man who's essentially just a funhouse mirror reflection of Doc and all of mm-hmm. Doc's pain. And, you know, both men, both men are longing for a decade that has passed, except the 60s have only just ended for Doc... For Bigfoot, he spent 10 years festering and curdling and missing his decade and not only lost his decade, but presumably from the way he wantonly fellates a <laughs> banana will and, and the fact that we'll eventually learn that his partner, Vincent Delicato, is dead, we get the feeling that he's lost a partner not only in the LAPD, but in life as well. Hmm. And because of that, he's the maximalist endpoint of what Doc feels. And that essentially makes him a, an outsized projection of everything that Inherent Vice is about. Yeah. And that's why I love I love watching them together. This because at first you or at least I viewed them as just almost just being like angry brothers that are fighting. But I think that there's something far deeper there. And I think it begins with the fact that Bigfoot has curdled. He has gone sour. There's something irreparably broken in him that hasn't finally and completely snapped in Doc. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. You know, I think when I look at the character of Bigfoot, I see that he is the one that's orchestrating the, you know, what happens because he he gets what he wants in the end. Yeah, like, there's like a whole exactly sub movie of him just going yeah. around town, placing the breadcrumbs out for Doc. Exactly. So I see him... Yeah, as the counterpoint to Doc, who is just trying to do his best and he's trying to follow the leads and keep on going, and Bigfoot sitting back and like sort of reminding him, like, don't forget about you know Prussia. Like, <laughs> even pulls up like on. the witness card that has yeah, the information. Like, exactly. One, so I one. see him as kind of a, a puppet master, and yeah. and that's what we see in this scene uh, because you can well, firstly, the very beginning of the scene. When uh, Bigfoot's on television, I love the look at the camera he keeps giving. <laughs> he, he's so enamored. <laughs> he's with so this excited vis- this projection to be of himself. on the camera, and then of course he's watching himself yeah. on the news. 
and then calling Doc and making it seem like she's dead. Shasta's oh. dead. <laughs> and he's doing it on purpose. He knows exactly what he's doing. And, and, you know, when he hangs, when Doc hangs up at the end of their conversation, he has this little smile. This beautific, he's so... He likes everything. being that puppet master. And... But also this feeling of everything's going to plan. Like, yeah. He gives him a little plan. bit of information. He's like, you know, you're Shasta Faye. She's... Well, first he has that great line. Yeah, she's gone, man. Baby, baby. She went yeah. all groovy on us. And baby. Oh, and it's funny because when he says man, it seems so foreign. But when Doc says, hey, man, it seems so natural. <laughs> well, that's so much of what Bigfoot does is He's... in, the, in his, the first time we see him projected on the tube, he is dressed like a hippie hawking for yeah. Channel View Estates. And then at the end... When he's eating all of Doc's pot, yeah. it's like he's trying to absorb Doc's being. And then here, when he tries, the first time you watch it, it feels like, oh, well, he's just taunting Doc by saying, yeah, she's gone, man. Baby, she went all groovy on us. I think that there's something larger at play in that Bigfoot's a coward and a bit of a hypocrite. He's a coward in that he knows that the LAPD, and we're going to get convoluted here, we know that the LAPD has worked with Colton Fang hitters, Puck Beaverton and Adrian Prussia mm -hmm. to take out his partner. It's never really made clear why in the film, in the book, apparently Vincent and Delicato, his partner was even more of a hard ass than Bigfoot was. And he basically they needed some, he was making too many complaints about the LAPD. So they needed him out of the way. Bigfoot knows this. He knows Adrian did it. He knows Puck did it. He knows the LAPD was in on it. Yeah, he still works for the LAPD. Yeah. There's no he Charles Bronson movie where he comes and just weighs, lays waste to everyone that he can see. For Vincent, he instead, he has to outsource his vengeance to someone who is not compromised the way he is compromised. And he's compromised because he's a hypocrite. He remains with the organization that broke him and broke his heart and killed the man that he presumably, again, given his wanton treatment of frozen chocolate-covered bananas, they killed the man he loves, and he just stands in the shadow and just gooses Doc in mm. the right direction. And I think, ultimately, the source of Bigfoot's love-hate for Doc and why he does these things where he will tease him and be merciless with him, but at the same time has this almost weird kink for trying to be his idea, his very sanitized idea of what a hippie is, is... He knows he's not the hero of the story. He knows Doc is the hero. And I think that there's something, there's a, I think there is an intense jealousy on his fart, his part, his fart. <laughs> Jesus. Hey, it's a movie full of dick and fart yeah, jokes, exactly. so we're going to keep that in. Yeah. <laughs> he recognizes that Doc is a hero capable of a meaningful act, and I said in a previous episode with crime novelist Jed Ayers that Bigfoot reminds me almost of a Shane Black character, of this detective who just needs that case mm -hmm. that's going to springboard him into salvation. And what makes Bigfoot so interesting is that's never going to happen for him. He is a detective without a mystery to save him. And as he even mournfully intones, no Cielo Drive for Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so... With, Which is a funny thing to mourn. It's, again, shows the kind of the cowardice <laughs> and the hypocrisy that is at the heart of this yes. character. We love him because Josh Brolin is amazing. But he wants what Doc has so badly that he can't see straight. And I think it kills him. And I think that's why he is constantly beating the hell 
out of Doc and teasing him is there's there's a love hate of God. I hate that I can't be the hero, mm. but I need this. I need a and hero need in this world. To, I need him to make it work. And you know, Bigfoot to me, he could ex- exist in the same universe as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh God, <laughs> I can he imagine and Rick him Dalton would have a great time. Exactly, I can imagine him and Rick Dalton. You know, I can imagine him being like, you know, I, I was an actor too. You know, <laughs> talking <laughs> oh, up his, yeah. his sort of acting side of things, um, and. Here, you know, you see him, yeah, taunting Doc and and it's it's quite cruel and, and Doc having a big heart believes what he's saying and he thinks she's dead and then it's like, what? What do you mean she's... Can, can we just for a second be <laughs> professionals professional. here? Yeah. I mean, uh, she's, she's, she's out there, baby. She's gone. Yeah, she's she's gone. Do you... Oh, and then he, he drops... she's out there? He drops that little thing, though. He's like... Do you think she might be with Mickey Wolfman? Yeah, you know, they are together. And at first, again, it's one of those things. With the first time you watch the movie, oh, he's he's making he's trying to emasculate him, make fun of him for his ex old being. But no, you're, he's he's drawing lines, hoping that Doc yeah, is going to go. Oh, get the picture. Would they be together? Then where would they be? Maybe they're on this boat, this boat run by this organization that does mm-hmm. this. And blah, blah, blah. He keeps popping up with little throughout the whole film. Oh. With like, don't forget about this, and what about <laughs> that? Question. The last few episodes of this show have been very Bigfoot heavy because it's been his first in the flesh appearance in the film, not counting his tube side commercial for mm-hmm. Channel View. This is kind of our farewell to our Ballad of Bigfoot trilogy of episodes. And I'm curious, how did, and you had to speak to the man afterwards, mm. how did Brolin's performance strike you the first time you saw it? Did you did you get a sense at all of what was really going on with him or was the outsized nature of it the first time so much that you're like, oh, well, this is just, he's just being funny. He's a dick. Yeah, I, I definitely, the first time I saw it, um, sort of brushed him aside mm-hmm. more than I should have. And it was only when it got to the end of the film that I realized how important a character he was. I just thought he was just going to be the antagonist, the thorn in Doc's side as he's trying to solve this mystery, mm-hmm. not realizing that he is actually the the one that's orchestrating a lot of it. So I talked to Josh Brolin and, he seemed to have so much fun talking about the the film. He had a great time with the character. And, and you can tell that when you're watching it, you know, he is still likable, even though he's playing this character that um, does so many unlikable things. He has that charm about him, even his little smile, yeah. you know, and, he's, and the, the pancakes and all of that. Um, but he, I think Josh Brolin on that day of interviewing got so many questions about Banana, bananas. Bananas. <laughs> I didn't ask anything about the bananas. That has been the most requested scene out of Increment Vice <laughs> Every single person, almost every single person, not every. You, I think, I think you are part of the one percent that didn't go. Can I get the banana scene? <laughs> the Can banana I have that? scene. Can yeah. I have that? Which, by the way, total aside, and I don't know if he. I can't imagine he's telling the truth because I think that this would kill a horse, let alone a man. He claims to have forty-four, have had forty-four bananas on that specific day of shooting. Yes, that's 44. what he said. That just seems like that would kill someone. Yeah. Although, as previous guest Mariah Gates, uh, the female gaze, Alum Mariah Gates Love said, Mariah. she's like, "Well, that would keep you really regular." So, <laughs> just just trivia for those listening. Bananas 44, really help. Forty-four bananas. That is crazy. Yeah, I vowed not to ask him about that. <laughs> and when the cameras were setting up, I was like, "How many questions have you gotten about bananas today?" He's like, "Every single interview." I was speaking with Drew McQueenie in a prior episode and he watched an LA Critics Association screening of that film and he was like yeah it was pointless to keep watching after that first reel because he's like, the crowd turned into a riot 
during the mm. banana scene. He's like, it didn't matter what happened after that. No one could focus. We were just in a daze after seeing that because no one could believe that Brolin, who's got this kind of James Caan yeah. old school, in, James Caan and Thief, yeah. <laughs> or John Wayne, that kind of cinematic, super hard-boiled masculine on-screen persona that you're like, well, he's not going to, he's not, I remember the first time watching this, he's he's not blowing the banana, he's <laughs> blowing a banana. James, or Josh Brolin is. Oh, and he does a little gag as well. The (laughs) perfection of Brolin's comic timing in this film is such that he even knows right when to gag. And then kind of shakes his head in pleasure like, like, oh, man. Keeps going with it. Just, oh. Yeah, I know. And, And, you know, seeing it for the first time moments like that were really confusing and baffled me because I was like what does this mean what is this movie it's obviously an importance to these bananas but I don't understand and then uh again second viewing and then I watched it a third time before coming mm-hmm. onto this show and that wait. was uh then it it was just really funny to me this last time I watched it wait a minute and this scene was was especially comedic wait a minute you have only seen it wait three times is that wait what you're gonna say You've only seen this Three show. Three times. And you had the temerity to come onto this show. <laughs> That's why I was like, why are you inviting me on this show? <laughs> well, at first I was like, yeah, it sounds fun. And then I've listened to several of your, your previous episodes and I'm like, oh, and I cannot. you've heard cannot. people like Kim who were just, and myself, who were just insane. Like, we, I I'm like, I five cannot. times the first week it came out. We yeah, saw it, you know. I can't match up to that. I, I would say I'm an appreciator of inherent vice. And uh, what I'd love to talk about as well as the the filmmaking side of things because that's what I love the cinematography the production design the costumes um but it's not my favorite PTA movie <gasps> but you know all of his movies are incredible get so, just, just, just get out you <laughs> know not I, I told you when this thing began you didn't have to be an inherent vice obsessive <laughs> yeah. you didn't have to yeah I've changed my tune just uh, I'll, I'll I still like it I I'll promise okay. I promise right. well let's talk about some of the filmmaking Yes. Uh, one thing I was curious about, and I know that people have used this to complain about the film, is this year we saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which did more than likely had three to four to six times the budget this film did. And when you watch that film, there are just these massive panoramic vistas of hippiedom and Hollywood, and it's wonderful, and it's amazing, and it's so transportative. That's not a word, but we're going to use it. Mm-hmm. And... When this film was being made, when Inherent Vice was coming out, I think everyone was very excited. Oh yeah, PTA is going back to the seventies. Yeah, Boogie Nights, man. Boogie we're gonna nights. get, we're gonna get that world. We're gonna get those giant sweeping shots of Reseda and Sherman Way and all. That. And then you watch the film, and strangely, the shots almost look like they're composed for like a four by three TV. There's all these very Close-ups. Close-ups or medium shots. I always think of, whenever I think of the cinematography in this film, and I don't mean this as a, a detractor because I love the way this film looks, I think of the scene the, the scene that comes just after this in Hope Harlingen's like, breakfast nook. And it's just these blasted white walls and a ser- just a series of two shots mm-hmm. from elbows up. And I'm, I feel like, and I'm sure if PTA were listening, he'd be like, no, we, we don't think about <laughs> stuff like that. I see that, and I think about it almost as a winnowing away of all the kind of stuff that was thrown into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, yeah. again, I love. That's not, a, that's not a criticism. But it's almost, in doing so, 
it makes this film more about the characters and mm-hmm. less about the time. This could be any time. And as we said earlier, if if you're watching the news today and it doesn't feel like things like Vigilant California mm. and the Golden Fang exists, Space and Force. you might be watching a very different <laughs> brand of news than I am watching. Oh, Space Force. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, we're not going to get off track. Yeah. I am curious... When you look at the composition of this film, especially visually, do you get a sense of that? Do you ever ask do you ask like well, where's where's Hollywood Boulevard? No, I like the way it's so specific, you know, to like Gordita, mm-hmm. you know, Venice, you know, California surfing culture, but it um, keeps the shot so tight that it has a sense of claustrophobia. Yeah. You know that you can't escape. And I also enjoy even though it confused me at first not knowing exactly where everything is you know not having it all neatly mapped out the world and the establishing shots of where we're going to next you know even when they're in the car it's usually just tight shots of them driving it's It's not really a wide shot of them going up the hollywood hills yeah you know you get they say topanga canyon and a few places (laughs) but you don't really get a sense of where everything is taking place you never actually see topanga you just see the house. house Which could be anywhere. Yeah. But I think it does make it feel more focused on the characters, more trying to draw your eye to what's important mm-hmm. and the details that you should be paying attention to and the ones that you shouldn't. Um, and also, again, keeping things quite amb- ambiguous so we can read our own interpretation into it. And the claustrophobia, you know, uh, there's a great film noir, The Hitchhiker by Ida Lupino. And that film is extremely claustrophobic. Yes. Three guys in a car. It's hard Very, to breathe when you watch that film, right? It really is. It's only 70-something minutes long. It's really short, but it sh- stays on their close-ups of their faces, and that feels like you can't look away and you mm-hmm. can't escape. And that was the sense I got with this film as well. You know, well. I've never made that connection between that film and this, but you're so right that there is, as I said, you know, I was being hyper-pretentious about it. I mean, oh, it's about making it timeless and just, just edging everything out. So this could be 20, 2019, 2020 if we wanted to be. But you're so right that it does present this claustrophobe vision. And this is a film about a time, much like ours, in which paranoia rules the day. Mm-hmm. The, the you can't de- see, you can't see like your peripheral vision or what's happening on the corners. Exactly. You can't. And it, it, it's a very wide, the, the, to compare these two films is, is kind of silly because they are composed so differently. But I always think of, it makes me think of what Roger Ebert said about uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, where you'll be looking at this massive wide open vista, like say the graveyard at the end, and then Tuco will just come in off the side and he shouldn't have been able to sneak up on the characters like mm. that, but it's like the world doesn't exist beyond the borders of the frame. And so someone could just sneak up right in front of you yeah. because he wasn't on frame. And Shasta until can suddenly appear because you can't see the wider and even, vision. Exactly, even though it's far more a, a far more boxy and kind of enclosed composition. I'd never thought of it that way, that so much of Inherent Vice is structured visually so that you can't see the forest for the trees. You can't see, or the, you can't see the ocean for the beach. Mm-hmm. You can't see the world. You only see the person that's delivering this next chunk of exposition. Exactly. To you don't see where they come from, what they do afterwards. I mean, it's so focused on that. And, you know, I would say that, Anderson is like, you know, many of my other favorite filmmakers. It's very deliberate about composition of Mm -hmm. shots and framing. I also love the way it's obviously shot, you know, 35 millimeter. It's got that graininess. And I know they experimented with all types of film stock and printing the film. 
uh, to give it that 70s feel, uh, but to not make it feel too, like, 1970s. That's what I like <laughs> about this film, too, is that all the costumes and the sets feel lived in. They there's don't n- feel like props. There's nothing garish I feel like, this. you know, I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love it, and I loved being in that world, and the production design in the film is incredible, but there were times when it felt like a costume. And what I like about this film is there's that section about in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Spawn Ranch section. And one of the reasons I love that is how lived in, as you said. Yes. Nothing's been washed. Everything has a very act two of Texas Chainsaw Massacre look to it. So tense. And, oh, God, now I'm going to want to talk about this movie. Uh, We're going to have to stay for a couple. Okay, we're going to do a Gene Tierney episode after this. We're going to have to cancel your plans tonight because then we're going to do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I still want to talk model shop. Because also with with Inherent Vice, you know, Doc's dirty feet, they feel real. Yeah. Whereas Sharon Tate's dirty feet in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood felt very, like, Added designed, on later, very yeah, designed. very designed, very front of frame. Even though I love that scene of her sitting in the cinema, it's wonderful. Uh, but I, and everything inherent vice feels very lived in, very dirty, mm-hmm. sweaty. Well, I don't know if you've it's ever. Not perfect. I don't know if you've ever lived around the beach, but the, you know how the salt air kind of damages everything and yeah. warps everything a little bit. And you definitely get this was filmed in in real life in Manhattan Beach, stand in for Gordita. Manhattan Beach is where Pynchon lived. Right. When this film is set. It I wasn't is, sure if it was Venice Beach because you only see a small slice of it. That's true. <laughs> but uh, a true obsessive nerd who has creepily visited these sets <laughs> and Doc's house can tell you it is Manhattan, it is Manhattan Beach. Beach. But there's this, when you live by the beach, that, that sea salt air, how it corrodes and it corrupts things. That's so much of how this film looks. There's nothing, there's nothing flashy about it. There's no big neon sign that says, you know, Boogie Nights. There's no big, hey, it's the 70s yeah. to this film. Everything's just kind of grungy and a little run down, which is also, I think, yeah, thematically perfect because that's Dirty. that's where America is at. Well, it's where America's at right now, but that's where America's at in Gordita Beach in 1970. Everything's just a little run like down. Like the hairstyles aren't perfect. Makeup isn't perfect. No. every know. Everyone looks like, you remember those great shots of the, uh, of the so far field? You, anytime you'd see behind-the-scenes shots of, like, the first year or two of Saturday Night Live, everyone just looks like they need a shower. Yeah. Everyone has that kind of Coke sweat. <laughs> They've slept in their clothes for four days exactly. look. It's a weird comparison to make, <laughs> but that's how I feel when I watch it. Everyone just looks like, hey, maybe you want to take a shower before you leave? Yeah. Docs, maybe, maybe well, change a shirt, maybe. Everything's wrinkled. Nothing's explosively colorful. And I know what this makes it sound like we're talking about something incredibly drab. But it's not. It just feels right. It feels real. Yeah, everything feels muted yeah. and pastel to me and, and, and like the um, exposed film stock, mm-hmm. you know. Because yeah, there, there was, uh, I don't think he specified what scene, but there was some exposed film lying From around his garage. Magnolia, or that's yeah. right. And he, they, I don't think they've said what they've shot on it. I've, sadly, and I'm, I'm sure this will not shock you or turn your hair white when I tell you, I have watched this sometimes just trying to figure out what scene I think it's the scene there's the the golden fang handoff at the end where the golden fang family is taking all the heroin out of Doc's uh, Doc's trunk and they're parked at the old Macy's it's now torn down golden fang style on Laurel Canyon in North Hollywood and that is so 
washed out, and it looks like it's almost got that flashing effect mm. uh, that Vilmos used in The Long Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Totally nerdy aside. Yeah. Just throwing that no, out there. I love, that's what I love about watching movies in general is to really look at the composition of shots. And, you know, I remember being young and, and seeing Rear Window, my yeah. first Hitchcock film. My favorite Hitchcock. My favorite too. Oh. And the first, <laughs> uh, that was the first time I realized that there was a director making mm. a movie and that all the shots were there for a specific purpose to make you feel a certain way. And ever since then, I've been kind of obsessed, hence my podcast, in talking to people below the line, as they yeah. say, the crew members and being like, how did you do that? And how did that happen? And every, I love that with film, most films or good films um, are so deliberate, you know, it's so yeah. intentional. Every shot is thought out and intended to be there. Now, do you feel like this is actually, we're talking about what we love about the composition of this film. Do you feel like this is actually one of the things that hurt it? You know, this this didn't exactly blow away the box office. Mm. It didn't really seem to wow audiences. because, And I think part of that is when you watch the trailer for this movie, it looks like The Naked Gun Part 4. Yeah. And then when you ease into this film, it is this melancholic, yeah, sweet, but sad. The, with literally the world's most complicated and confounding and harrowing sex scene that is still some kind of sort of romantic, but at the same time just... Your, your hand is over Sad. your mouth. Like, what are you? What am, what am I looking at? I thought this was going to be like a Leslie Nielsen movie. Um, <laughs> but also I think a part of it is it is so muted visually and it is so flashed out. Do you think that that hurt the film with, say, the average person walking in off the street thinking they're going to see a Joaquin Phoenix laugh riot? Yeah, I do. I think that it's also because it is a film that demands multiple viewings, you know, yeah. as I've only seen it three times, but um, it definitely <laughs> demands more than one viewing. And that's not something you can ask for of like a wide general audience mm-hmm. who are used to, you know, and I, I think another thing that Inherent Vice seems to speak to, to me is, is a loss of a time period of filmmaking. Um, yeah. Because, you know, so many films around the time that it came out and now give you everything that you need to know and a very bright and flashy and soundtrack and, you know, a big experience when you go in. And I think people have less patience these days to watch something that they can't exactly explain or know what's oh going on. Can you even imagine the elevator pitch for this, for this film? Oh, yeah. what, what could it, no. How, I, in one episode, I did run through the entirety of the plot and it took me five minutes. Yeah. Which, I love this movie, but Jesus... There's no way to pitch this movie. Exactly, really. and I think it's hard for people to hold on to. It's hard for people to understand, and people are more likely to check out. Plus, they don't have those big, brash visuals to hold on to. Yeah. And also, the comedy, the humor, is not signposted as like this is funny now. <laughs> you know, it's quite subversive <laughs> at times. It's very like comes out of nowhere and um, absurd sometimes. And like the the scene that comes directly after. The one that we were speaking about where he suddenly does this that scream. big scream. <laughs> I mean, that to me is the funniest yeah. moment in the film. But then um, immediately goes back to mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what makes it funny, is the reaction then going back to mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's, you know, same with um Jojo Rabbit, the film that came yeah. out last year, is is um it wasn't signposted as, as like, this is funny now that Is this okay? Found Am I allowed to, to laugh at this? Exactly. Gotta look at the audience. Am is I allowed? That, is that supposed to be funny yeah. or am I just absurd? Yeah. 
the most heartbroken I ever am when watching this film and not heartbroken because of what's happening on the screen is when I see this with a crowd and I've seen this with a lot of crowds because I caught this theatrically so many times that if I if I were to say it aloud, you would probably slowly inch back like that gift <laughs> of Homer Simpson going into going the bushes. Into the hedge. Uh, no one laughs at the funny stuff. Mm. And no one laughed when I went to go see this in its original run. Luckily, I've seen it subsequently at like the New Beverly where people know what's up. But yep. stuff like the great, my favorite gag in the whole movie is when Clancy Sherlock, sister of the now deceased biker, uh, Hell's Angel, uh, or, or, or not, uh, Aryan Brotherhood member Glenn Sherlock, she is telling him the name of a Mickey Wolfman concept. Mm-hmm. And it's Era Pimento, something, something along those lines. And he's like, oh, what's that? And she's like, oh, it's Spanish for, sorry about that. And so he writes in his notes, something, something Spanish. Spanish. That's yeah. all he puts <laughs> as this thing he's got to find somewhere in L.A., something Spanish. Yeah. And if you live in L.A., you know that something Spanish is not going to help you get to where no. you're going. Nobody laughed at that. Oh. Nobody laughed at that. It, mm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to get emotional. Yeah, I felt the same about now. Phantom Thread. The, the first time I saw it, nobody laughed at anything, and I was thinking, but this is funny, right? And then when I went to it the second time, it was with a crowd that you know had seen the film and obviously seeing it a second time, and everyone was laughing. I saw it at the L.A. premiere. I don't know if you were there. The fine arts. Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah no one laughed. It was. It made me kind of uncomfortable because I knew that PTA was standing in the back watching, and uh, there were scenes where I was laughing, and then I and I would put my head down because I felt like I was a madman. Laughing to myself and being like, um, "Wait, this is funny, though." I was like, oh, did, did I just make like a dick move? Laughing <laughs> at that? Is this supposed to? Is this serious? It's really dark and uh, serious. I I thought it was really really funny, but. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and I felt that way watching this. I, I felt like Max Cady in Scorsese's Cape Fear, where when he's watching uh, Problem Child, and, like, ha, 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 ha. and I look around, everyone's looking at me so angrily. In the first time, I, the first time I saw in Hair Vice, yes. so embarrassing. I feel like this is becoming kind of like a therapy session now, where I'm just telling you all of my neuroses and my emotional problems. It's a safe that space. I, that I, oh, thank you. Thank you. We are going to loop back around now to the actual scene that we're here to talk about. We still have one thing more to talk about. I think this does tie into what you were saying earlier about the the doom and gloom of the the death knell of the 1960s. The scene ends with a phone call from Hope Harlingen. And she's calling because she has something to do. uh, Her husband has gone missing. And Doc says, oh, I'm so sorry to hear you. Mm. And then she said. But she says, no, he's dead. And the scene that we're going to slide into from this one is all about a woman who is convinced that the thing she's lost isn't lost, isn't gone. And so much of that inability to let go, despite the reality of life and the the inherent vice of time, which is that it takes everything away eventually... This this inherent vice and this this affliction of loss that affects Doc and Bigfoot and Tariq with his missing neighborhood, it makes up so much of the mystery to come, especially the mystery of Coy and Hope Harlingen. And something that Pynchon notes in the book, and Sordelige gives us in her narration in this in this upcoming scene. We're gonna we're gonna cheat and skip the <laughs> upcoming scene a little bit. She notes these were perilous times, astrologically speaking, for dopers, especially those of high school age, who'd been born, most of them, under a 90-degree aspect, the unluckiest angle possible. 
between Neptune, the Doper's planet, and Uranus, the planet of roots prizes. Doc had known it to happen that those left behind would refuse to believe that people they loved or even took the same classes with were really dead. They came up with all kinds of alternate stories so it wouldn't have to be true. Mm. And here we're going to learn about a woman who is told by every available authority the very plausible story that her junkie husband died of a heroin overdose. But the existence of a single bank receipt and her gut feeling, or what but Sora Leach would call Doper's ESP, are enough for her to believe that he's still alive. And I think that hope has a dual function here. There's this wonderful PTA-ish, PTA-ish, humanistic <laughs> romanticism, which is a hard double word to say, by the way. <laughs> There's a humanistic romanticism about her that bleeds into the rest of the film. The man she loves is alive, damn it, and she's going to find him. Mm-hmm. But there's also this darker portrait of a post-Manson generation that's unable to let go of what's past. And to swing this back around to Bigfoot, who began our scene, we can see how the inability to let go of things can curdle into something dark and quasi-fascistic in its inability to let go. Yes. I mean, Christ, to go back to we see that on the news today. Yes. And I'm curious what you make about the... I feel like Hope Harlingen is very much emblematic of the 60s generation as a whole when I watch this movie. She, to me, is the post-Manson kid. Yeah. And that... She's a drug counselor now, uh, you got know. Got the new chompers. Yeah, got the new chompers. She's a good mother now. And and she has that belief that her husband's still alive. And the thing that draws me into that scene is that, um, you know, obviously Doc can relate to that. He yes. wants Shasta to be alive and... You see how throughout the journey when he meets Koi and then later on, you know, wants to help him, it's like he can't get Chester back, but he knows he can get Koi back to her husband. And so it represents something that maybe Doc wishes, you know, could actually happen to him, the the fact that he could see Chester again and hope herself, you know, she's, you know, she's doing good now. She seems to be <laughs> cleaning up her act. So she does seem like she has woken up and started to move on with her life and that she's doing really well, unlike someone like Bigfoot that's still holding on to his life. But there is that one thing she can't let go of, that that, that feeling that he's out there. Yeah. And presented in her case with the aptly named Hope, mm. she's she's correct. That, yeah, that I didn't think of her name. That's so true. She's And, and she's correct that, that Koi is out there. Yeah. But I also, as I said, I think that there's another side to this, which is not to go, we don't want to get into an OK Boomer discussion. (laughs) Uh, I feel like Joe Biden's going to rappel from the ceiling if we do. Uh, But there is a sense, especially of this generation, of not being able to let things go. And I feel like so much of this movie is concerned. Mm. We don't, we can't, we don't know how to let things go. We can't let things go. Because what if that thing was going to come back and I let go now? Yeah. I'll never know. And... I also saw it as as hope, cleaning up her act, being starting to move on and seeing clearly, and mm-hmm. being someone who understands that there are things that are happening that's greater than herself, mm-hmm. and that there is a larger conspiracy at hand. Doesn't trust the fact that she suddenly got all of this money, and you know people telling her that she just had didn't have the deposit slip. I mean, she can see that something is going on, and she's frustrated by her inability to do anything about it. Um, and so she's another catalyst for Doc of like pushing him towards 
this direction and and trying to unravel the the bigger mystery. And I have to appreciate how you're you're a film noir aficionado, so you know that there's always going to be yep. the very Chandler-esque first case. Yep. And then there's going to be the unrelated second case. And then somewhere along the way, the way they're going to, to intertwine, and we're going to go, oh, it's always one big case. What I love about this movie, the perversity of this film, is it starts with one case. Then we get a second case. Then we get yeah, a third, third case. case yeah. we, we, we have Shasta war- warning Doc about the booby house snatch of Mickey Wolfman. Then we get Tariq Khalil mm-hmm. and his missing neighborhood in Artesia. Then we get the murder of Glenn Sharlock. Then we get the disappearance of Coy Harlingen and possible resurrection thereof. Then we get the death of the wonderful, wonderful Dr. Rudy Blatnoid, played by Martin <laughs> Short, which it kills me that we've gone so long and still haven't been able to talk about Martin <laughs> Short. But this, the, I, I, the perversity of just this cascade of five, six, seven, eight mysteries. And yet what makes this movie work, and it's the reason why I'm doing this nerdy-ass podcast, is they are all so necessary and thematically resonant. And mm-hmm. as, we just, as you just said, they tie back into this idea of, of, of love. I, I, I yelled at a previous guest, uh, <laughs> crime author and uh, screenwriter Jordan Harper, when he was, he was just saying, "Man, just PTA alienates me. I don't get his, I don't get his POV. I don't get what he's, I don't get what he's coming from. There's nothing he does that the Coens don't do, and I love the Coens, but for whatever reason, I don't like PTA. I don't get what it's about. Mm. And I just shouted, "It's about love, baby. <laughs> that's what it is. That it, yeah, I feel like." Man. I feel, <laughs> I feel like all his films. That's what they're about. They are some kind yes. of meditation. I mean, Punch on Drunk Love is my favorite PTA film. All right, we're gonna do that's gonna be our fourth podcast episode. We're gonna get. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I nearly got into a car wreck about a uh, two months ago because I was I was running errands deep in the valley because uh, the goddamn DMV Golden <laughs> Fang, and I I realized I was driving past the little office park where Sandler worked, and I nearly ran my car off the road because mm. I was so excited. Swinging back to this, uh, all of his films, I feel like all of PTA's films are meditations on how we uh, deal with the love that we encounter as adults. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the second family we make, Boogie Nice, mm-hmm. uh, or it's the meeting someone whose love we feel like we don't deserve, like a Punch Drunk Love. Even Daniel and his adopted little boy mm. in There Will Be Blood, I feel like all his films meditate just on how we are so messed up and how we are just trying to get through the day with this capital L thing, love in our lives and how do we process it and how do we deal with it? How do we forgive those who hurt us with it? Mm-hmm. How do we make ourselves feel worthy to those who are just willing to give it to us? And we mm-hmm. can't understand why there's a little bit of that inherent vice. As you were saying that how he doesn't feel worthy. Yeah. doesn't feel, doesn't really understand what she likes. Of course we, as we watch the movie, we realize why she loves him. He's a hero. He is, He's the guy, even though it leaves her, their relationship twisting in the wind a bit, he's the guy that will look at, I can either try to save Shasta from the Golden Fang, but maybe she doesn't even want that or need saving. Mm -hmm. But then there is this family over here that I could put all of my karmic chips on and I can put put them back together. And I think that's why he sees that as just the normal, the right thing to do. He's not going to think twice about it. And I think that's why someone like Shasta loves Doc is because he's the kind of guy that wouldn't even understand that that's what would attract her yeah. to him in the first place. No, I agree. I agree with that. And and um, 
just to go back to the scene quickly, you know, the the two phone calls are so interesting because you have the way that Bigfoot, you know, sort of seems to want to tort um, Doc into saying that Shasta's dead and then mm-hmm. you have Hope's call where she's just very matter-of-fact and your husband is dead, dead, you know, and it's such a different delivery and that could be a very funny line but it's not at all because it lands because you realise that she has lost someone so important to her. And I do agree that love, you know, runs through all of PTA's films. I I don't, you know, emotionally connect to this film as much as I do something like Punch Drunk Love, <laughs> and I can't even explain why that is. Yeah. Um, but it it is what keeps me watching his films, I yeah. think, you know, that... Otherwise, it could be very dark, you know, Phantom Thread, you know, that relationship. <laughs> our, our mutual friend, Mariah Gates, I don't know if you've listened to her episode, she ends the episode by saying, you know, I would pro- I would poison someone if I love them enough. <laughs> like, I would do it. I think I could do that, yeah. And I love that twist of, you know, she knows oh, and she... spoiler warning, yes. I guess. Uh, that but twist yeah. that he, yeah, he, he, he wants it, you know? And yeah, He's he, like, sure, I like being taken care of. For the hungry boy. Yes. Oh boy, this just took a turn. <laughs> well, despite the fact that Inherent Vice is not your favorite PTA yeah. film, and oh, I was I was going to say thank you for coming on the show today to talk to me about it. I have to stop and say I never, I've seen this movie so many times. It never struck me. You're right that there is the that this film is or this scene is bookended by these calls about mm. a supposedly dead person. Who is not? Oh, you're so good at this. You, you should just replace me. I'll just leave. <laughs> no, not at all. The Charlie you're Brown Christmas song is going to so play, and I'm just going to sulk out of here. And hearing you talk about this film has given me an even greater appreciation for it. And you're going to watch it fourth, fifth, Multiple sixth, seventh times, times now, you know? over the holiday break, right? That's right. Okay, I'm going to check in. <laughs> you have a letterbox. I'll peek. Or I'll probably watch The Apartment again for the 500th well, you, you, time. you got to do that for New Year's Eve. Sure, of course. sure. Ring a ding ding. Plenty. Plenty of days. For those listening, this is technically being recorded right before Christmas. (laughs) You have plenty of time to go to the dollar store, which is where the Blu-ray is at. It makes me so sad. Pick up an hair advice. You watch it a couple more times. Do it for your old pal, Travis. Sure. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for indulging in this obsession of mine. I so, so appreciate it. You are someone I've long wanted to talk to about this film and film in general. So you've made my day. Merry Christmas to me. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, I want to say this this has been great. This is it for me. I'll see everyone next time when myself and a very special guest are going to swim deep into the Mansonoid terror twilight of the 1960s to hang with the Harlingens, which sounds like a really, really cheesy sitcom, and study the decade and the damage done. Whoo! Obsession sure can be magnificent when chatting cinema with a keeper of the flame as passionate as Alicia. And while film obsession can be a little lonely at times, like Alicia says, when you're able to bump into a fellow traveler and their obsession and perspective and experience is able to bring something new to yours, well, that's just the best, isn't it? Magnificent, even. And so let's keep surfing on these hazed wavelengths of obsession, looking for the POVs and perspectives that can change and complement and contradict and complicate our own and give an ever-growing view, panoramic and technicolor, to this strange little film. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.